Revelation 16, verse 1. Give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Father God, we do come before you now and we thank you for your word. We pray, O God, that you right now would give us spiritual understanding of your word, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things, that you would teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us in righteousness, that you, O God, would minister to our hearts and make us more like Jesus. Father, I pray for your people. I pray that they would stand strong upon the truths of your word. And, O God, I pray that you would help me. Lord, would you protect me from error. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You alone are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Recognize those words? Do I need to sing them for you? These words comprise the second verse of the hymn, In Christ Alone. Way back when, in the summer of 2012, a prominent mainline denomination in the USA made national headlines when they barred this hymn from their hymnal. Why? Why? Well... When they asked the song's co-writers, Stuart Townend and Keith Getty, when they asked them for permission to print an altered, or should I say alternate version of the lyrics, the writers denied their request. What did they want changed? They wanted to change the line, the wrath of God is satisfied, to the love of God is is magnified. They wanted to remove the reference to the wrath of God. Now, when asked why this change was denied, Keith Getty offered the following response. It's a few sentences. Let me read it for you. I understand some people take issue with the theological perspective that God's wrath was satisfied through Christ's death on the cross, Yet I believe this view stems from an inadequate understanding of how God's wrath differs from our own. 
He continues, each of us faces the temptation to fashion God out of our own image and a picture of God formed through our own experiences of hurt and anger and injustice or rage is a sad and vindictive one indeed. But this is not the infinite good God we serve. God's wrath, he says, is not like our wrath. And his ways are not like our own. And later in the interview, he says, an understanding of God's wrath against sin is foundational to understanding the very gospel itself. You see, objections to the biblical teaching about God's wrath are not new. It didn't start way back in 2012. The objections are as old as the church itself. But the surprising number of people professing to be Christians who refuse to embrace the God of the Bible as he's presented in the scriptures, quite honestly, should take our breath away. Of course, we're not surprised, are we, when an atheist critic of Christianity like Christopher Hitchens, he said that nothing proves the man-made character of religion so obviously as the sick mind that designed hell. We're not surprised to hear that, are we? Or the atheist critic Richard Dawkins, when he writes that teaching children to believe in something like the punishment of sins in an eternal hell is the worst form of child abuse possible. That doesn't surprise us when we hear critics say things like that, does it? But when popular Christian teachers say things like, the Old Testament God is a God of anger and wrath, but the God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy. Or when they say things like, we don't need to be rescued from God's wrath. God is a rescuer, not a punisher. When you hear things like this, you wonder, or maybe you don't, maybe it's just me. I wonder if people even read the very Bible that they claim to teach. In fact, ever since Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon in 1741 titled, many of you know this, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Teaching about God's wrath and the punishment for sin has progressively disappeared from pulpits and seminary classrooms and Sunday school rooms. So much so that the typical message preached in many corners of the kingdom today looks like something that Richard Niebuhr described back in 1959. Someone asked him to describe what was then called the liberal Protestant gospel. And this is what he said. That gospel preaches a God without wrath, bringing men and women without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. That message is not the message of the Bible. That message is not the Bible's message. This is nowhere as evident, of course, that in the book of Revelation, if you've been following along for 15 chapters, 
You can't run from the teaching about God's wrath. Think about it. We've already come face to face with God's judgments against sin and against sinners. From those in chapter 6, you remember on that great and terrible day of judgment, what do the sinners do? They call out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And don't forget what we saw at the end of chapter 14. Or all those who were not in Christ, all those who were worshiping the dragon and the beast and his image, what happened to them? They were trodden in the winepress of the wrath of God's fury. And now we come to chapter 16 and we come to the bowls of wrath. And pastorally, I believe it's very important to pause the exposition of longer passages. And for this week, make sure that we all understand why God's wrath is being poured out. And get ourselves ready to embrace what comes after this. Not just in this chapter, but what comes in chapter 18 and 19. Really, to make sure we understand what the Bible teaches about God's wrath. So this morning, I want us to consider God's wrath together. Many of you didn't come expecting to hear that, did you? Let's consider God's wrath together. Let's do it in two parts. First, I want us to consider the nature of God's wrath. The nature of God's wrath. And second... The good news about or of God's wrath. Now, if you're taking notes, follow along with me. And maybe before good, put in parentheses, surprisingly. The surprisingly good news of God's wrath. So let's begin with that first point. The nature of God's wrath. Everybody hear me okay? Sorry that this thing's not working right, so make sure you can hear. Remember chapter 15. Remember how it concluded. It concluded with a picture of the inner sanctuary of heaven. You can go back and look if you would like. And it's filled with smoke. It's filled with smoke from the glory of God and his power. And remember what it said. No one could enter it until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This tells us. That the voice we hear in chapter 16, verse 1, the voice that tells the angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Whose voice is this? It's God's voice. It's God's voice which bellows out. It's God's voice proceeding from his heavenly temple. From the temple that back in Psalm 96, verse 6, is described as being splendid, majestic, strong, even beautiful. It's described as beautiful. And it's from this place, this beautiful place, that the terrible bowls of wrath come to be poured out onto the earth. And they're poured out at the direction of the one who sits on the throne. The one who throughout all of scripture is defined as being 
holy, absolutely holy, set apart from all creation in divine perfection. You may remember that it was both Isaiah and John, old and new, who saw this picture of God seated on his throne and what surrounds God. The four creatures crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. It is this God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, the one true God. And from his sanctuary, where the bowls of wrath originate and proceed or flow. This alone should teach us, yes, remind us, that it is not man's imagination. It's not the rhetoric of puritanical preachers. It's not the musings of the most curmudgeonly scholars that give birth to the idea of God's wrath. No. God's wrath is a holy wrath that responds in holy anger and terrible violence precisely because of God's moral perfection, because of his holiness, and the morally heinous nature of sin. Because God is holy, he cannot tolerate sin. And it is sin, the sins of mankind, from Adam and Eve in the garden all the way to today, that have elicited God's wrath. You see, God is not angry at mankind because we're mankind. God's wrath doesn't burn because we exist. God's wrath burns because mankind sins. Like I said, wrath burns against sin. His holiness must abhor what is evil. And so we must understand that it is the evil of sin alone that explains God's wrath. Stephen Sharnock, many of you have heard of, one of those Puritan writers. He wrote so wonderfully this. He says, a love of holiness cannot be without a hatred of everything that is contrary to it. A love of holiness cannot be without a hatred of everything that is contrary to it. Then he continues, as God necessarily loves himself, so he must necessarily hate everything that is against himself. And as he loves himself for his own excellency and holiness, he must necessarily detest whatsoever is repugnant to his holiness because of the evil of it. No strong words. We have true words. But I want you to understand, though, that Keith Getty was right. Many times we misunderstand God's wrath because we only know our wrath. We only know our own anger. It's incomparable. Maybe you've seen that Disney movie, Inside Out. Yeah, we're, we're like that character in their anger. 
right? We're set aflame in rage at the slightest feeling or the smallest offense at anything around us or any circumstance. We're more like that than we are like God. God's wrath is never an uncontrolled rage. Rather, as one writer says, it's his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. So here's the bottom line. Because God is holy in nature, it is from this nature that his wrath flows. Let me say it another way. His wrath against sin flows from his holiness. Because he is holy, he hates sin. Is this not what we see in chapter 16? The wrath of God is poured out upon those, look at verse 2, who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. We've talked about this. These are those who are not in Christ. You see, the the world on which the bowls of God's wrath is poured is a world that has rejected God, rejected him in rebellious unbelief, and chose instead to worship the evil powers of Satan. And in pouring out these bowls, God not only pours out his wrath, but notice down in verse 6, he delivers his people. He delivers the church. How's the world described? Those who shed the blood of saints and prophets. This is important. This helps us bridge our understanding of the Testaments. Throughout the Bible, God's people have been instructed to leave vengeance to God. It's not just in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament. To not repay evil with evil. To embrace, as Jesus taught us, not to nullify the law, but to fulfill it. He says, love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Undeniably, the recurring message of the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way to the end with relation to God's wrath is this. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not a contradiction. It's not. One commentator says it well. He says, God would have us not do what he does precisely because he does it. God says, do as I say, not as I do. And justly so. Since he is God and we are not. He is God and we are not. The point for us then is to look at these bowls of wrath as executing a just retribution for sin. They are being poured out because of sin. I've told the elders and anyone else who will listen to me, preaching revelation is hard. Talk about sin and wrath every week. Do you get it? Are you hearing the message? Is this maybe why many people don't study this book or talk about this book? This is hard stuff. But you have to come to grips with it. God's wrath is being poured out against sin. 
God takes sin seriously. How serious? Look to the cross, which we will. These bowls represent God's justice, acting in punishment for violations of his law. And every time I read these passages in the book of Revelation, I'm drawn to Hebrews 10.31. Do you know that verse? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think what I want to do this morning, brothers and sisters, is encourage you to resist the urge to only major on one aspect of God's character while completely neglecting the other. We cannot divide his nature. You cannot. He is indivisible. You cannot divide God and his nature. You cannot divide his nature into wrath and love and speak of them as if they're in opposition to one another because they're not And we cannot present God as being two different gods. A God of wrath in one testament and a God of love in another. Have you read the Bible? Jesus talks about hell. More than anything else, he talks about hell. Such divisions are unfounded. Such divisions are unhelpful. And I don't use this term lightly. They're heretical. They're unbiblical. Dividing God's nature is dividing God. We have to resist that urge. I believe that the Bible calls us to embrace all of who God is. So that we can rejoice in all that he is for us. You won't know all that he is for you unless you know all that he is. And that brings us to our second consideration this morning. The surprisingly good news of God's wrath. It's hard to follow that up with good news. So what good news could we possibly glean? A lot, actually. But I'm going to draw your attention to two. Two things. First, look to Revelation 16.7. We'll get to it next week in full. But just look down there. John hears... The altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. True and just are your judgments. You see, God's wrath is good news because it upholds God's law for the well-being of all of creation. The world cannot be whole. The world cannot be truly good. The world cannot truly be at peace while evil is still running rampant. Can't be. Because God's wrath is directed at sin and evil, because that's where it's directed, we can know that for certain, one day the world will be cleansed. The world will be cleansed and that God's righteousness will finally reign over all. I look forward to that day. Do you? Imagine with me for a moment. It's an illustration I borrowed from, of all people, N.T. Wright. But imagine with me a village in the country outside a big city. This town seldom receives any attention from the leaders, from government leaders. 
So in the absence of law keepers, a builder gets cheated by a customer. A widow has her purse stolen and no one has the power to help her. A family is evicted from their home by a a greedy landlord who just violates the terms of the contract. Injustices like these just multiply and multiply, and it multiplies misery and loss in a place without anyone to come in and set things right. Now, imagine with me that a judge and his officers arrive in that town. He hears each case carefully. And he renders effective justice. And he does it with a special eye to the care of those who are vulnerable and needy and weak. And under his rule, judgment happens. Judgment is done. The guilty are punished. And unjust losses are restored. That cheating customer pays the builder. The thief returns the widow's purse with compensation. The landlord relents and he obeys the obligations of his agreements. How will that community respond? How will that community respond to the judge and the officials who have come? They're going to be thankful, right? They're going to have thankful hearts. This community is going to breathe a sigh of collective relief. They're going to honor this judge and they're going to thank him from the bottom of their hearts. They're going to be thankful. Now I want you to imagine that this village is a picture of the whole world. Of the whole world. Is it good news that God judges all evil? Is it good that God does so in divine truth and divine justice? Imagine what it will be like one day when God concludes history in a holy, vengeful, and just wrath that restores everything to its heavenly splendor? Can you imagine such a day? Probably not. Because we don't get many pictures of it here on this earth, do we? But there's coming a day when in truth and justice all things will be made right. I believe we'll join along with all the others in Psalm 58, 11, and we're going to sing, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Praise be to God who judges the earth. So we see, first of all, that the good news about God's wrath is that there will indeed be justice on earth. Not the perverted sense of justice many of us carry around but biblical, godly justice. The second bit of good news about God's wrath is that it can be exhausted. That it can be satisfied in Christ. That's your only hope of escaping it. It's your only hope. Consider what Paul writes in Romans 5, 9. 
Speaking of the truth of justification, that we've been declared righteous, we've been declared innocent, right? Because Christ's righteousness has been given to us in exchange for our sin, which he took upon himself. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You need to be saved from the wrath of God. Paul makes it clear that through Christ, we are saved from the wrath of God. The mercy of Jesus Christ saves us from the wrath of God. That was the message that Jonathan Edwards preached way back when, when he was warning his listeners that apart from Christ, they're being held in God's hand in danger at any moment of slipping between his fingers and falling into the very pit of hell. He told them this because he was a big meanie, right? Or was he trying to scare them out of the pews? And was that why he told them that? So you need, if you think that, you need to go read it again. You know why he told them that? He told them that so he could tell them about God's mercy. He told them that so he could tell them about Christ. You see, the truth about God's wrath is meant to draw us to the fountain of God's mercy where we can drink freely and drink deeply of the love and justice that's found in the gospel. For instead of of God's wrath being poured out upon us on that day, if you're in Christ, his wrath was poured out upon Christ there at the cross of Calvary. As Jesus died there for us, yes, and that's why we sing it here, the wrath of God was satisfied. The wrath of God was exhausted for us who are in Christ. And yes, I can agree, as his wrath was satisfied, his love was magnified. But his love was magnified because he remains both just and the justifier of those who have faith. Jesus Christ. Justice still was met. Praise God that it was met in Christ on our behalf. The one who became sin for us so that in him we might become his righteousness. So I guess that's what I hope for you. I hope that the truth about God's wrath, and as we see it continue to unfold here in Revelation in the weeks to come, I pray that it would drive you to the foot of the cross. Drive you there so you can rejoice knowing that God has saved you from his wrath. And he has wrapped you in his loving embrace. Delight to know that the record of debt that stood against you was canceled. It was set aside, nailed to the cross. So Christian, listen. You've been cleansed. You've been redeemed, restored, and forgiven through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You have not received what you deserve. That's what mercy is. You've received mercy. Grace upon grace. And we thank God for that. So to wrap us up this morning, I just want to say that as long as angry sinners think that they can hold God in their hands, 
As long as angry sinners think that they can take God and form and fashion Him into who and what they want Him to be, there is always going to be objections about the wrath of God. There will always be. And many of you probably already know this. But those of us who embrace what the Bible says about it, we're going to be marginalized, ridiculed, even ostracized. I don't care. I know that sounds crass. I'm going to stand on the truth of God's word. I have to. How firm a foundation. If you stand on sand, Jesus said what will happen. The storms will come. And your house will wash away and you along with it. So I implore you by the mercies of God to stand firm on God's word. Hold fast to the truth of the gospel. Delight to know even hard and difficult things like this. And rejoice that you have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear in that great and awful day of wrath. Because you are in Christ. You belong to Him and you will always be with Him. Amen. Thanks be to God.